Matthew 26. The uh, second verse in that song we just sang. O Lord, my... Could you put it on the screen, actually? So I don't look at the notes. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, strong defender of my ruined life, my guilt cross laid on your shoulder in my place you suffer bled and died fits so well with what we're going to sing or see this morning i hope in matthew 26 before we read the passage i just want us to i want to ask you a question to think about do you ever hear people or yourself profess love for the lord i love the lord for this i love jesus christ because of this that or or a different facet of who he is, an expression of genuine love. Do you hear that in conversation? Is that a normal part of your life or your prayer life? I have to admit, at times it catches me off guard when I hear others do it. And for a number of years in my own life, it was. I can remember pretty distinctly the, the first time I can recall somebody in prayer praying and saying, I love you, Lord. And it stood out to me because it seemed in my mind, to presume. How can you actually say that? We all understand, right, that our love for the Lord is pretty fickle and faulting and imperfect. So it seems presumptuous to say, with genuineness, I love you, Lord. I love you, Jesus. In that that time that this man was praying, and saying that, and it's striking me, I, it, it, I realized like it was true because the rest of his life demonstrated that. It was not feigned, it wasn't hypocritical, it wasn't trying to draw attention, it was born out of a true love for the Lord. In Matthew 26 today, I think we're going to see, well, I hope that you see, two things that, re- that relate to that, a deep and abiding love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is in uh, chapter 26, verse 6 through 16, as we see a woman come and anoint Jesus. And then we're going to jump ahead and we're going to look at the Garden of Gethsemane. We're not going to look at the entire chapter this morning. There's way too much there, but there are these two aspects from chapter 6 that I want us to draw out. As we see Jesus Christ lifted up, in the word, right? It grows our affection for him. So let's read Matthew 26. We're going to start in verse 1. Our focus at first is going to be verse 6 and following. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster, alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, as we look now at your word and as we see Jesus Christ exalted and we see him loved and we see him suffering for us. May our love for him grow. We're thankful for his life lived in our place. And we ask now that you, Spirit of God, would show us Jesus and make him more glorious and beautiful to us than ever before. We pray this in his name. Amen. Jesus is now headed to the cross. 
right? This is, chapter 26 could probably serve as another transitional moment in the book of Matthew, right? Several statements have been made up to this point that Jesus must go to Jerusalem and must suffer and be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, to the Jewish leaders, be crucified and die. And now we see this really accelerate, that Jesus is going to the cross. In the first part of chapter 26, you see the plotting of these religious leaders to kill Jesus, but their plans include waiting till after the Passover. Now, Matthew does something interesting, is he actually backs us up in time. So he backs us up to the Saturday before Jesus' triumphal entry in verse 6. Okay, you remember uh, we celebrate Palm Sunday, the, the Sunday before Good Friday, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Well, the day before that, he's in Bethany, and he's at this, this house. Matthew does this, I think, to specifically place a contrast between what happens with Jesus' anointing and what Judas does, right? These things don't happen back to back. Judas' betraying of Jesus actually takes place after after the Passover. But Matthew wants us to see something, I think, very clearly. Notice where Jesus is at. He's in Bethany. Now, Bethany, if you're familiar with your Bible, is significant because it's probably the place of Jesus' greatest miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead. And he's in a house. He's there, the house of Simon the leper, a man who once was a leper and probably healed by Jesus. And he's having a meal. And this, this woman in the scene that comes up and anoints him, Matthew doesn't tell us who it is, but the other gospel accounts do. Uh, John especially says, this is Mary. This is the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha. Uh, Mary, we, we see a couple of times in the, in the New Testament, and in Luke chapter 10, we learn specifically about Mary, that she loved to sit at Jesus' feet, and she loved to listen to him. She just loved to be with Jesus. Martha, you remember her sister, she's frustrated with Mary, because Martha's busy serving Jesus and all the others, and Jesus corrects Martha and says, hold on, Martha, Mary has chosen the good portion." She's chosen to sit and listen to me. She loves me. She has chosen the the good thing. Mary had evidently chosen Jesus while Martha is distracted by many other good things like serving Jesus. That's a good thing, but she was distracted by that. And in this scene, in chapter 26, there's an action that happens. Mary enters the room and she anoints Jesus with oil or ointment. Um, There is what I think we need to see in this is that there's an extravagance to this action. This is an extravagant thing for Mary to do. Picture that she walks into the room and she's holding a jar that would have contained in it something nearly a year's wages, right? So the the equivalent would be 300 denarii. A denarii is about a day's wage. She takes this beautiful, probably fragile jar and just breaks it open and dumps it all over Jesus his head running down his whole body to her feet. And she begins, as the other gospel writers to tell us, that she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. His whole body is covered in this ointment, in this fragrant oil is what it is. So think about, just to put it in a modern perspective, Google tells me the average income in Grand Junction is $52,000 a year for a household. I would assume it's probably actually higher than that. But if you you take that percentage, you make $52,000 a year, and you have a bottle of perfume worth $42,600. Somebody of significance walks into your house, and you take this, nearly a year's salary, and just dump it on them, right? There's an extravagance that is to be seen in this action. It's extravagant because it's demonstrating not only, well, it's demonstrating what Mary saw the value of Jesus right? She saw that Jesus was the most valuable thing to her, and in this action, she is showing that. Now, the other thing that's so shocking, not just the extravagance of this gift, but the disciples' response, right? Notice what they say in, uh, in verse 8. They're indignant. They're, they're, they're upset by this, almost angered, and they say, what a waste, right? They, they realize, okay, hey, if we got almost a year's salary. We could do a lot of good with that. What a waste, though, to just dump it on Jesus. They're frustrated by it. They're upset by it. Now, 
Many of the disciples seem to have this response. You see that in verse 8. The other gospel writers, especially John, points out that Judas was upset by this because he was a thief, and he had charge of the money bag. So he would have liked to sell that because he would have taken some of that for himself. But all of the, many of the disciples seem to be upset by this. And they, they point out in verse 9 the reason for this. We could have helped the poor with this. A noble intention, right? To, to help the point or to help the poor. But whatever their motivation, their love for the poor was misguided in this moment. They have missed the point of what Mary is doing. So as we think about the disciples, you have a couple of different groups here. You have the disciples who respond and say, this could have been sold to the poor. And then you also, we have Judas in this scene, who as John has pointed out, was a thief. And he only really cared about himself. He didn't truly love Jesus. So there's two categories, I think, that are important for us to think about as we think about our own love for Jesus. So you have the disciples who love Jesus, but their love is imperfect. And you don't have those disciples, you have those disciples who don't love Jesus at all, like Judas. So what Jesus does in this scene is he helps us properly understand what Mary has done. See, Jesus knows hearts and minds. He knows motivations. He knows what's in people. He knows the motivations of Judas. He's going to betray him. He's aware of this. And he knows that what Mary has done, he is, she has done out of pure love for Jesus. And so what he says in verse 10 is that she has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done something that is beautiful for Jesus. Specifically, Jesus says, she has anointed my body for burial. She's preparing me for what I am about to do, to die. And in that, it is beautiful. Jesus uses this anointing scene to point his disciples ahead to where he's going, the cross. He must, he must die. But as I mentioned earlier, I think the, the thing that we see, this, uh, along with the extravagance of Mary's gift, is also a sharp contrast between Mary and between Judas. Matthew placing this story where he does, this account of Mary's anointing Jesus, really makes clear this contrast. You notice there's monetary terms that are used, right? Um, This large sum, as other gospel accounts point out, is 300 denarii. And then we see Judas betraying Jesus. And what is he, what do we, what monetary term are we given here? 30 pieces of silver, right? I think that there's supposed to be, uh, we're supposed to see how each person valued Jesus. 30 pieces of silver was the amount that you would have paid a man whose slave was gored to death by your ox, right? That was the the law established in Exodus. If you had a slave and another man's ox gored him to death, you paid him 30 pieces of silver. It's a small percentage of what Mary's gift would have been. So not only do we see perhaps Judas's value of Jesus, but also the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders as well. So for Mary... Her gift is lavish, extravagant, and demonstrates a genuine, pure love for Jesus. She loves Jesus for who Jesus is. And Judas goes and betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Then we also have the disciples. We, we know the disciples love Jesus. I think about in John 6. Remember what, what Peter says? There, Jesus is saying hard things and many disciples leave him. And what, what happens is that, the, that Peter, or Jesus asks the rest of the disciples, are you going to leave as well? And what's Peter's response? No, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of life. So the disciples love Jesus, but their, their love undoubtedly is imperfect, just as Mary's was, because no one loves Jesus as perfectly as they ought to, right? So what does Jesus do? He gently corrects their thinking and instruct, and, and corrects their thinking and instructs them. And his his whole point here is that the, the disciples do not have much longer to show pure love to the incarnate Jesus alone. Right, his entire life is one where he has uh, been wandering. He's had no place to lay his head. What does Isaiah describe him as? A man of sorrow and suffering and acquainted with grief. 
And here in this moment, we see just pure love and devotion given to the person of Jesus Christ alone. So many, so few times in, this, in his life was he shown this kind of love and extravagance. So what we need to take away, I think, from this is a reminder again that Jesus is to be our object of highest affection. Right? We are to, to love Jesus for who Jesus is, to adore him, to find pure, unmitigated love for him and him alone. But we are all the disciples, right? We all fail So thankfully, Jesus holds on to us. It's not about us holding on to him, but he holds on to us. Now look at verse 36. And what I want to do now with the rest of our time is we think about this goal for the disciples of Jesus is to simply love Jesus for who he is. I think we see in the garden and as we progress through the final days of Jesus's life, we see more clearly why. Why is Jesus to be loved and treasured so deeply. So let's look at Jesus in the garden. Start in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. As we think about the loveliness of Jesus and why he's so lovely, let me just give you an idea of where we're going in this passage, okay? The reason Jesus is so lovely is this. Jesus suffered for you, and the suffering of Jesus is lovely for sufferers because his suffering gives your suffering purpose, and his perfect suffering gives you hope in the middle of your suffering. You know, I was thinking this week, there is a this is a challenge, right, to try and preach on the suffering of Jesus. As it's, and then thinking this specifically relates to the suffering we all experience. And there's a danger that's, in, I think, inherent in this, is that it could come across as trite. Uh, we've all experienced different levels of suffering and hardship. And so I, my prayer is that as we look at this, we see simply Jesus suffering for us, and we see how he He suffered perfectly and meets us in our suffering. Now, a couple of things have happened, right? Before we got to the garden, Jesus has the Passover with his disciples. Judas leaves and goes and betrays Jesus. And then there's that interaction where Jesus says, hey, the the shepherd's gonna be struck and all the sheep will flee. What do the disciples say? Oh, no, not us, Lord. We We won't depart from you. And Peter, most confidently, I will never deny you. I will die with you, right? So then Jesus enters into the garden and he takes with him three of his disciples further into the garden, his closest companions, Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, if you would. And here in the garden, what we see is the suffering of Jesus really begin. Now, when we, when we think of the suffering of Jesus, our first thought is the cross, right? The physical agony he experienced, the, the beating, the fact that his body was mutilated. And that's, that's true. That is absolutely part of the suffering of Jesus. But there's another part that we see here in the garden that was perhaps even greater than the physical suffering he experienced. And it's the emotional turmoil and suffering and agony that he experiences here in the garden. The writer of Hebrews helps us understand 
why Jesus went through all the things. We turn to Hebrews chapter two. And what I wanna do is I wanna just almost make the application before we look at what Jesus is doing in the garden. Okay, because as we read these things, we need to keep this in mind. Now, the writer of Hebrews is explaining why Jesus is doing what he's doing. So look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. I want you to specifically notice the last phrase of this verse. For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay, in the garden, we're seeing the emotional, the internal suffering of Jesus. And here the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was made perfect through his suffering. Now, the, when the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus was made perfect, he's not speaking to an imperfection being within Jesus, right? It's not that he was imperfect and then made perfect, but perfection is speaking not to a moral quality, but rather a sense of qualification, right? In his suffering, he is shown to be qualified to be the suffering savior that we need, right? In Jesus's humanity, by always obeying, by suffering obediently, he is shown to be qualified to be our savior or the representative head of all his children, right? Because Jesus suffered perfectly, you now can endure your suffering, right? is the idea. And look down at verses 17 and 18. And notice this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Notice a couple of phrases here, right? First, that one, every respect, right? There is not a temptation, not an element of suffering that you will ever face or experience that Jesus has not gone through and perfectly obeyed the Father. Then notice that word, so. Here's a word of conclusion, right? Jesus is being made perfect. His being made like us in every respect means what? He can be an intercessor. He can be an advocate. We need him before the Father. Not only is he our perfect intercessor and advocate, always merciful, always faithful in this task, but he is the one that propitiates or satisfies the wrath of God against us. Right? John brings this out in 1 John chapter 2, that he is the propitiation for our sins. And then notice this other phrase, he's able to help. That, that stood out to me this week because we love to go to people that we think are able to help us, right? Uh, I've, I've thought more about, we, we live in a, a culture and society that really loves degrees and designations and lots of titles behind your name. Why? Because we think it gives you a sense of qualification. And it does. I'm not, not knocking that. But you know what is oftentimes better? Better help? Somebody who actually knows somebody who's actually lived through, who doesn't just have a theoretical knowledge of it, but actually knows. So when we think about suffering and Jesus, the one able to help, he's actually suffered. He's actually able to help us with the kind of help that we need. Jesus has actually experienced every sorrow, every temptation, every hurt we will ever feel. Therefore, he is truly able to help. And this is the other thing too. His ability to help is not trite or obliging. How many times do you say like, oh yeah, give me, a, give me a call if you need some help with that, right? And it's kind of like the polite thing to do. And you might be able to offer some help, but not, you don't really mean it entirely, right? Jesus is not that way. He is able to help. He wants to help. He can actually help. He's never put off by our request. He never only gives us a partial helping because he's dis, disinterested or unable, Jesus is able to help. And then look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For, speaking about Jesus, we do not have a high priest, Jesus is our high priest, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Notice that last phrase there, without sin. Jesus has been, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, being tempted in every way we have been, but yet never sinning. He's walked through every sorrow, every form of suffering. He's been tempted to sin and yet has never once sinned. He has done what we could never do. Had he sinned, would he be a help? No, he'd be just like us. That was the problem with the Old Testament priesthood, right? Is that they were all sinners. They couldn't perfectly make atonement. They couldn't perfectly satisfy the wrath of God. But Jesus can. So if this is all true, we think about what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that Jesus is actually able to help us, that he is a sympathetic and faithful high priest, then why do we ever struggle, right? And here's here's the reality. We don't actually believe these things. We don't actually believe that Jesus can satisfy the longings we have. We don't actually believe that Jesus has faced everything we've faced. We don't think he has the answers or that he can provide comfort and relief. But he can, okay? And in the garden, we see this. We see that Jesus is what we need in our deepest sorrow. So turn back to Matthew 26. And I want in the remainder of our time to look at seven things from this text regarding Jesus being what we need, Jesus being lovely and beautiful for us as we suffer, as we sorrow. Notice, first of all, in verse 36, the need for companions in prayer. Notice what Jesus does. Think about it. Jesus had perfect fellowship and communion with the Father. You can go read Jesus' prayers. You can read John 17. Jesus had perfect fellowship and communion with the Father. And I find it very interesting that what Jesus does here is he brings three other men to pray with him. He brings Peter and James and John. And notice in verse 38, he goes a little further away from the disciples, but he wants them to stay back. I think it's, it's one of the other gospel writers that says it's about a stone's throw away. So maybe... 50 yards, right? But he wants them to stay back there and he wants them to continue to pray. He says, watch with me. Now, the idea of watch there is not that they're just to be sentries on the lookout for Judas and the others who are coming to arrest him. But he says, watch with me. Pray with me is the idea that is communicated there. Don't just stay awake, but keep praying with him. So think about this. If the Son of God had others praying with him in his deepest moment of sorrow and suffering, should we, should we not as well, right? If, if Jesus saw the importance of having these other men praying with him, I think there's a lesson to us. We in sorrow and suffering need others to pray. There is very, a very real ministry of presence, right? Where people just show up in moments of sorrow and suffering. You don't have to have the words. You just need to be there and you need to pray. Job's counselors are kind of the wrong kind to imitate, right? They show up and they think they have all the answers. Job will tell you what's wrong with you. Rather, he just needed somebody, and he even laments this. I just need you to sit here. I just need you to to pray with me. In suffering, in sorrow, we don't always need lots of words or attempts to explain what's going on. What you need are friends who love you enough to just sit with you and pray with you and cry with you. And that's an encouragement to us to help others in suffering and sorrow, right? You don't have to walk in and have all the answers. You just have to go like, man, I'm genuinely sorry this is happening. Can I just pray with you? Can I ask for the, you to know the peace that passes understanding and trust that Jesus will provide that? And let me point you to Jesus who actually knows what you're experiencing. So first of all, notice that in verse 36, the necessity the need for companions in prayer. And look at verses 37 and 38. I want you to look at the sorrow of Jesus. Jesus is in deep agony. I think it's Luke that brings this out, that in praying, he's in deep agony. That's like a physical term, right? Agony. And then notice in verse 37 that he's sorrowful and troubled. And then it progresses to an even deeper sorrow that he is feeling, where he says, he's, I'm very sorrowful. The depths of sorrow that Jesus is experiencing leads him to say, I could feel, I feel like I could die under the weight of this sorrow. That's what's meant by that phrase, 
sorrowful even unto death. This sorrow is so intense, so agonizing, I feel like it it could kill me. There's actually something, I had to Google this, I'd heard this but wasn't sure, called broken heart syndrome, right, where people actually die after experiencing intense trauma and intense sorrow and suffering. Imagine imagine a Job-like situation, right? Like you lose all of these things in the matter of hours, and it could actually kill you. There's, your body has hormones that it releases that would actually lead to heart failure. So Jesus is experiencing agony and sorrow that, that feels like he could die from it. And I, I don't think this is just hyperbole either, right? Luke uh, records that his sweat was like blo- of drops of blood falling to the ground. There's actually conditions where in, in extreme sorrow and suffering, blood comes out of your pores, so the, the depths of sorrow that Jesus is experiencing had a physical toll on him. His physical body hurt under the sorrow he's experiencing. The scriptures are quite clear on the physical toll that emotional suffering and sorrow can have, and on, have on us. If you've read the, the book Lamentations, you're familiar with chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at these verses here, but you'll notice how the writer interweaves emotional sensations with feelings of physical affliction. So he says, I am the man who has seen affliction. Under the rod of his wrath he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. So he's feeling darkness. He's feeling emotional affliction. And then he said, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me. With bitterness and tribulation, he has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. And then verse 13, he says, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. Right? It's not actually what happened. He didn't actually have arrows in his kidneys, but that's what he feels from the weight of the sorrow and the suffering that he is experiencing. So as you experience deep sorrow, sorrow that may even hurt physically, remember Jesus experienced that as well? What an encouragement. Then notice the prayer, verses 39, verse 42, and verse 44, the prayer of one who's in deep sorrow. And it's this consistent refrain, let this pass, but your will be done. Jesus prays for a number of hours in the garden. Um, It says after the first time he goes away, he's gone for about an hour, and then he comes back to his disciples. So he, and he does it again. So we can assume a number of hours Jesus is praying in the garden. And we don't have much of that recorded except for this consistent refrain, let this pass, but your will be done. He's saying essentially the same thing. And here's, I think, the point for us. As we think about suffering and sorrow, what matters in prayer, what makes it effective is not the eloquence of it, not the many words, right, or the theological terminology. All prayer that is effective is prayer that has as its first concern the will of God being done. Effective prayer is concerned about the will of God. I think sometimes people are intimidated to pray because they don't think they have the right sounding words. And, and I think what we need to see from this is it's not about the right-sounding words. It's about, God, I want your will to be done. It's praying in accord with his will. This is what Jesus taught, right, in, the, in Matthew 6. And he taught us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your what? Will be done. The will of God will always be done. As we think about Jesus' suffering, God's will, it will be accomplished through his suffering. And you think about your own suffering, God's will will be accomplished through your suffering as well. So we always want to pray in moments of deep sorrow and suffering for the will of God to be accomplished. We don't want to pray apart from the will of God, right? Because we don't know what full purpose, how God is going to accomplish his will. So we can't pray, for example, just take away the suffering for we don't know if if it might not be God's will to be accomplished through our suffering. It may very well be that God's will is for us to walk through suffering, sorrow, and trial, and through these things, his mysterious purposes will be accomplished, right? That's Jesus' testimony 
right? Let this pass, but your will be done. And God's will was that he had to go through the suffering in order for his will to be accomplished. As I think about the mysterious purposes of God being accomplished through suffering, I think Jess has quoted this hymn a number of times. It's William Cowper who wrote it. And William Cowper was in John Newton's church and suffered from chronic depression and darkness and attempted suicide a number of times, but wrote, God moves in a mysterious way. Sometimes suffering's mysterious. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds or the suffering you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work. So scan the suffering that you're dealing with in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Think about what Paul did. Familiar with the life of Paul and in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he's suffering and sorrowing from a physical affliction a physical infirmity, and he pleads with the Lord. He say, three times I pleaded with the Lord that this thorn in my flesh would be taken away. And what was the Lord's reply? My grace is sufficient. Right? Paul learned that he might, through his suffering, he learned the sufficiency of grace which the Lord had provided to him to be able to walk through that suffering and to endure it. So in suffering and in hardship, the Lord learned, or Paul learned endurance, When we continually submit ourselves to the will of God, there can be a joy-filled, hopeful, and I use this term, hopefully intentionally, resignation. Joy-filled and hopeful resignation that this is the path the Lord has willed for you to walk. Then you can say with Paul in Philippians 1, I changed the, personalized this when he says, for it has been granted to me that for the sake of Christ, I should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The other thing that's fascinating with that verse is just prior in verse 28, Paul is saying that our continuing to follow Jesus, our continuing to believe him in the midst of suffering is actually proof that your salvation is from God, right? So as you walk through suffering and you continue relying upon Jesus, as he continues to preserve you, as you continue to entrust him to the will of God, it's, it's demonstrating that your salvation is from God. So in suffering, there can be joy and there can be a reassurance that the Lord has saved you. Notice one other thing, what Jesus prays. He prays, my father, to whom his his prayer is addressed, right? My father. And this, and maybe, maybe this is just something that was stood out to me, but when you pray, do you often find in your prayer trying to address God in a multitude of different titles, as if he gets tired of hearing Father. Sometimes I think like I need to be creative in my prayer because he gets bored. And I'm not saying that's wrong because what we're doing when we're praying to the sovereign creator of the universe, we're recognizing different aspects and characteristics of who God is, and that's important. But I think that there's something demonstrated here that in suffering and, and sorrow, you don't need to be concerned about being profound in prayer. You just need to go to your Father who you trust and who knows you. Do we have a more close and caring and comforting title for our God than Father? You know, if human fathers are moved to compassion by the earnest cries of their children, how much more is our Heavenly Father? This is what Jesus points out, right, in Matthew 7, when he says, if you then who are evil know how to give give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Right, so so in suffering and sorrow, we cry out to our Father. And some, some of you don't know what it's like to have a Father who loves you. And so you, you don't understand what that means. So this phrase from John 16 stood out to me as Jesus is, teaching the disciples, and he just says this, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The Father himself loves you. You can just take that by faith and go to him in prayer. 
Then notice, fourthly, in verses 39 and 42, why Jesus was sorrowful. And it's simply this. It's that phrase, this cup, right? So Jesus, the primary concern of his, I don't think, as he looks towards the cross, was the physical agony and torment of the cross. Rather, it was the fact that he was the one who would experience the displeasure of God. To experience the displeasure of God would be to have the Father against him. The Father will turn his back on the, on, on the Lord. To have the Lord against you is something that only sinners experience. Um, those who rebelled against the Lord. In Jeremiah 21, Jeremiah delivers a message to the house of, Je- of, of Judah, so the kings who are descended from the line of David. And he says this, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord, then jump down to verse 13, Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley, O rock of the plain, declares the Lord. You who say, Who shall come down against us, or who shall enter our habitations? I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds, declares the Lord. I will kindle a fire in her forest, and it shall be devour all that is around her, right? So Jesus is going to feel the Lord against him, something he's never experienced or known. He's never experienced the displeasure of God. Jesus had never experienced the shame and grief of sin, and now he is going to experience all of that for all of his people, for all time in one moment. And he knows this is what he must do. Think about the shame and grief that you feel over sin and at times the agony that can come from it when you feel conviction of sin or guilt over sin and it can hurt. Now, Jesus experienced that having never experienced it before for all of his people. What a weight. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, right? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him to become sin. When Jesus becomes sin, what is he doing? It's the cup. He's drinking the cup of God's wrath. That's what he's referring to when he says, uh, verse 39, if this be possible, let this cup pass from me. The language of drinking the cup is an Old Testament metaphor to speak to the cup of God's wrath that we be poured out. So again, Jeremiah helps us understand this. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Think about that. The cup of the wine of God's wrath poured out on nations, he says, will make them crazed. And now Jesus is going to drink the cup, the wine, of God's wrath himself. Notice in verse 41, another thing, the failure of the disciples and the temptation of the flesh. Jesus has instructed his disciples to stay alert, to watch, and to pray with him, but they can't, right? They keep falling asleep. Time and again, they fall asleep, and so Jesus comes to them, and he gives them an instruction about spiritual zeal, and yet the pull of the flesh that pertains to more than just this late hour of the night. He's saying, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And this idea of watching could be translated as alert, right? Think about the parable of the ten virgins and the things we just looked at in these last uh, chapters, 24, 25, right? Regarding alertness to the, impen- the imminency of the return of Jesus Christ. But I think the, the, the point we need to take here is that the, the disciples have demonstrated up to this point a spiritual zeal, right? When Peter says, oh no, Lord, I will never deny you. I will even die with you, right? They're zealous, but that's gonna be shown to be pretty faulty. There's something to be said that in spiritual zeal, there needs to be an extra amount of alertness, alertness to our temptations of the flesh and our denying of Jesus, there's a necessity to watch and pray. Romans 7, Paul speaks to this, a passage that resonates with all of us, right? When he says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. We all know what that feels like, that Romans 7 experience. I want to do right, but my flesh is what Jesus is addressing. But I think this is, this is what's really important for us to see the loveliness of Jesus here. What does Jesus do? He perfectly watches and prays and doesn't enter into temptation. I think that's, that's kind of the point. Jesus comes to the disciples and says, hey, watch and pray. You may not enter into temptation. And Jesus goes and does it, right? He perfectly watches and prays and does not enter into temptation. These words from Jesus, I think, are to be understood as a gentle correction, He's gently correcting his disciples. Hey, I know the danger of, or the danger of temptation, the danger of your flesh, and it's going to become more apparent as you deny me. Watch and pray. If we would watch and pray properly, we would not enter into temptation. I love the hymn I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, Watch and pray, find in me thine all in all, right? Finally, here's some good news for those of us who have failed to watch and pray and have instead given in to Jesus or into temptation, right? We find in Jesus then our all in all. Jesus perfectly watches and prays, never gives in to temptation. And now think about this. He prays for you. He is interceding and advocating on your behalf. The uh, chapter in Gentle and Lowly that Dane Orland writes on Jesus' advocacy for us, right? When he's saying that Jesus is in heaven uh, advocating on our behalf. What a wonderful truth for us to consider. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. This is important. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it, to endure the temptation. Finally, the last thing I want you to notice is that Jesus' prayer is answered. So Jesus is in deep agony and sorrow and suffering, a kind that feels like it could kill him. And he is strengthened. And Luke brings this out specifically in chapter 22. And Luke says, then an angel comes and ministers to Jesus and strengthens him. Now, I don't think the first thing that we need to do is go like, okay, in deep sorrow and suffering, an angel will come and visit me. I don't think that's the, it's not prescriptive, right? This is not the common pattern. But the point is, is that Jesus's prayer was answered. The Lord preserves his son and he will preserve you. And this is, think about this. I think this is an application here. This very passage should serve to preserve and encourage us. This passage, these words from Jesus, the knowledge of Jesus having suffered in the way that he has comes alongside you in suffering and sorrow, right? Comes alongside you and says, look what Jesus has done and look how Jesus sustained and look how Jesus was sustained and now the Father will sustain you. You're crying out to God in the midst of suffering and sorrow, saying, bring some relief to my pain and hurt. And here comes the Lord, faithful, and gives us a picture, gives us an example, gives us Jesus, who perfectly, even in deep anguish and despair, suffered, and the Lord preserved him. And so we can hear from the Lord, if I preserve Jesus in the deepest sorrow and suffering and agony, will I not preserve you as well? As Jesus finishes his prayer in the garden, he walks through this suffering and sorrow and temptation and he comes out on the other side, right? And he's ready to go to the cross. He knows he must drink the cup of God's wrath. The end of the suffering for Jesus is ultimately glory, but not before he dies, right? He's going to be crucified. He's going to be raised and then he's ascended to glory where he is now. The end of suffering, the, the, the glory that Jesus will know does not come apart from suffering. So for those who have found Jesus to be their 
greatest affection. The end is glory. Peter, uh, or in John chapter 18, Jesus, again, this speaks to the the confidence of where he's going, right? When he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So here's, here's, I think, the final point, if I could, to conclude this and bring it to, to application to us. It's this. Jesus suffered and drank the cup of God's wrath so that you do not have to suffer and drink the cup of God's wrath. You can now walk through all your suffering never once knowing the displeasure of God for Jesus experienced that for you. When you suffer and when you sorrow, you, you, have, you can know with great confidence the Father is not, I'm not experiencing this because the Father is displeased with me. The Father's not pouring out his cup of wrath on me. He's done that on Jesus. And I know the end of suffering for Jesus was glory and he was made perfect through suffering. I will be too. We can rest in that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for how you have so wonderfully taught us in your word about the suffering of Jesus. We see clearly what he has done, walked through so perfectly and experienced the wrath of the Father. And now we don't. So, Lord, I pray this morning that you would apply your word to our hearts, that we would love Jesus, that we would see Jesus as beautiful and worth our highest affections and worth all of our praise, that our entire lives would be centered around Jesus. And that for those who are walking through all various levels of suffering and sorrow, you meet them in that suffering and sorrow and you preserve them and they can, even in immense pain and hardship, can know with great confidence that you love them and that there is joy and that you are accomplishing your will in the midst of that. So do that today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.